You're listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. My name is Alex Cox. I'm the host and producer of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. The CBLDF podcast is part of our ongoing education program and brought to you in part with a grant from the Gaiman Foundation. In this episode, we go to Baltimore, Charm City, and we have a live podcast from Baltimore Comic-Con featuring Vivek Tuari of The Fifth Beetle, who we've spoken to before on this podcast, uh, Ron Mars, who's written any number of things over the last 25 years, which we'll talk about in the course of the interview, and it's co-hosted by Dirk Wood, who joined us in the Seattle live podcast. He's from IDW Publishing, and... We appreciate all three of those gentlemen joining me on stage. It turned into a very lively conversation. Uh, We touched on a lot of topics, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, everybody. Welcome to the CBLDF podcast. I want to introduce Dirk Wood from IDW Publishing. Hello, everybody. And Vivek Tawari. Hello. Did I get that right? You sure did. Perfect. Uh, Vivek, you want to talk a little bit about what you're up to and, uh, and why sure. you're here for the weekend? Sure. So uh, I'm the author of a graphic novel called The Fifth Beetle, the Brian Epstein story. It's based on the life of the Beatles manager. Thank you. Um, Agreed. And uh, it's, it came out about a year and a half ago. It's done very well. We, um, we won two Harveys here last year. We won the Eisner. It's been added to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, that was named a Lambda Literary Finalist for Best LGBT Graphic Novel, something I'm incredibly proud of, and we're adapting it into a film. Uh, in fact, if you're here tomorrow at 1.30, I'm doing a panel uh, all about the film. I'm going to be reading from the screenplay and comparing it to the graphic novel to show you. I wrote the screenplay myself um, to show you how the film really is an expansion of the graphic novel. It's not as though we're just trying to shoot the book. Uh, I'm a huge fan of both comics and film. So I guess I'm here in those dual capacities as, the, as a comic author, but as well as a, a film author. Uh, and I have the great honor and privilege of uh, being asked to host the Harvey Awards this year. So I'm doing that tonight, which I'm also incredibly excited about. Um, so I'm here for a few different reasons and also to just catch up with some old friends. Cool. Indeed. Dirk, you've uh, been on the podcast before. Well, sure I have. Uh, uh, yeah. We had a, a lengthy interview previously about The Fifth Beetle, which uh, is still archived on the site. Excellent. Maybe you could introduce yourself again as well. Well, I'm Dirk Wood. I'm the marketing guy at IDW Publishing. It's funny, Vivek mentioned old friends because I used to work at Dark Horse back in the day. And <laughs> yeah. year, probably four or five years before Fifth Beetle came out, he and yeah. I were having long talks about what that was going to mean to Dark Horse. And then I, of course, unceremoniously jumped ship and left to IDW. But uh, I've been at IDW now for five years. I love it. They're my brothers in arms. I, we put out somewhere between 60 and 80 books a month, which makes everybody pretty busy. We uh, have something for literally everyone on the planet, from My Little Pony to uh, 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 artist editions for, for uh, classic Marvel books to prose to you name it. So, yeah, I'm here uh, flying the flag for IDW, of course, and catching up with some old friends and enemies. Sure. <laughs> the Beatle took a very—I mean, I was working on it for about a decade, and Andrew Robinson, the uh, primary artist on it, painted it. Every page was fully painted for about four years, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Dirk was there at the very beginning. And yeah. I do remember calling you, being like, "It's out! I swear, it's actually coming out." Mm-hmm. You know, I think there was a long period where a lot of my friends were uh, were disbelieving me that this thing would ever happen. So. Well, I, and I will tell you honestly, just as an aside, it's not a fifth Beatle panel necessarily, but you know. 
I am proud to have played even the tiniest part in Thank everybody you, that box. You so. were there at the beginning when we were beginning to strategize how this thing would roll itself mm-hmm. out, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. Um, I had no idea about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. I didn't either. So uh, hear about yeah. that. So the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has a, you know, it's, the, the full title is Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum and Archives uh, and Library. I think it's Museum, Library, and Archives. I think that's the full title. And so they, um, they contacted me about wanting to officially add the book into their archives and library. Um, the Brian Epstein, the book is about Brian Epstein, I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, he, uh, he is the guy who discovered the Beatles when they were playing uh, basement clubs, unprofessional band, drinking on stage, smoking on stage, goofing around. He's the guy that cleaned them up, he gave them the suits, the haircuts, every record label had passed on the band and he finally convinced one to sign them. He convinced Ed Sullivan to book them when a British band had never made an impact in the United States. So he really is the guy that discovered the Beatles and then engineered Beatlemania and gave the world the Beatles. And he did all of that while in his personal life he was gay and Jewish and from Liverpool. Uh, the 1960s, those were three tremendous obstacles. It's a felony to be gay, anti-Semitism is rampant in the country, and Liverpool, uh, prior to the Beatles, is not a town that has any cultural significance. So it really is, it's an amazing story about the development of the Beatles, to watch this, on, on this scruffy band become international superstars, but it's also an inspiring human story about an underdog who had big dreams and went the distance in his chosen field. And um, many years overdue, perhaps, but a couple years ago, uh, Brian Epstein was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, posthumously, he died in 1967. And... Um, the Rock Hall, to their infinite credit, decided to induct him. It was the first time an artist manager had ever been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, but they also very honestly called me and they said, we, we know that he belongs here, um, but we don't know much about him, and will you, will you help us with that? And so I was very honored to, uh, to work with the Rock Hall on that, on, on that induction, and, and I liaised with the family. And so I was very involved in, in all of that. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, to their credit, really is trying to, to make up for that mistake. Um, and, uh, and the same night they inducted Brian, they inducted Andrew Lou Goldham, um, who discovered the Rolling Stones and managed the Rolling Stones uh, to great success. So, um, so the Rock Hall is actually making strides to, uh, to include in their memorabilia and certainly in their library, you know, uh, key, what they think are key works on, on the business and the development of bands and how the, how, how the bands came to be historically from the back end, the inside stories, not just how the members met. Um, and uh, I was very honored that my book was one of the ones that they chose to put in there. So. It's pretty cool. It is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. It was a crazy year that year. Do we know if there are any other comics in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? That is a good question. I actually tried to find that out because I thought that would have been a cool thing to like, put on our press release if we were you know, the only one or one of few. Um, and you know, I didn't want to go ahead and say we're the only one, but I couldn't find any. Um, I think it's so, probably a good assumption that it's the only one in there. Well, there are some yeah. other good music books out there, but um, but it, uh, it's certainly one of few, that's for sure. Sure. Any maybe any of the incarnations of the Kiss comics? Yeah, the, I mean the Kiss comics <laughs> are, are certainly well-known music comics, whether you like them or not. They're, they're right. You know, oh no, they're, sure. They're super popular books. Mm. I mean, some people make fun of them, but I think those books are awesome. Uh, oh no, 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 they are awesome. You probably I, worked I on the new series, the new Kiss series. I did. I worked yeah. on Kiss at Dark Horse and at IDW. But no, no, no. I, I just think I'm imagining it's more sort of nonfiction that makes its way in there. Yeah, than, I mean, you know, maybe. I, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if they had some of those books and the, the the Kiss books in there as archives. But on the nonfiction side, I don't, I don't know if there are others. I mean, there's a Johnny Cash graphic novel that's that's pretty good. There's another Beatles book called Babies in Black that's about um, Astrid Kircher. Um, that's also quite good. So there are a few music books. Oh, um, and uh, uh, what is the, the 
the Carter Family book. Oh yeah, the Carter Family. That's, that's great. Carter it's Family. Like, don't and I don't forget it. the song or what's the yeah, called? Yeah, I think those that's are a great book. Abrams. Carter Family just came out like two years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe two years ago. Um, so there, there are a number of, of excellent music-related, music history-related graphic novels, but, but we, are, we are few and far between. Uh, coming to the table is, uh, there we go. Sorry, <laughs> I haven't seen this guy in a long time. It's the great Ron <laughs> Mars. Thank you, brother. Ron, you want to say hi? Hi. Is there for Ron Mars? Yeah! So, so, sorry I'm late, but somebody apparently let a lot of people in the building. That is a good point. Yeah. It is a, a mob scene about and, and, and they did not part when I said, you know, don't you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ron, do you want to uh, introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you're up to? Um, I'm Ron. I write comics. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of the whole thing. I mean, I, 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 haven't, I haven't done an honest day's work in 25 years, and I'd like to keep it that way. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, I'm Ron Mars, and I've uh, written comics for 25 years, including Green Lantern and Silver Surfer and Star Wars, and uh, all the way up to now, when I'm doing uh, Skylanders for, for for IDW. That is correct. Famed IDW. Mm-hmm. Uh, Those of you who are, who are listening at home, Ron just slipped me a package from my kids of Skylanders books, so thank you for that. Uh, actually a brick of heroin, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so I'm doing some up in there. So I'm doing Skylanders for IDW, John Carter for Dynamite, uh, finishing up Wishblade for Image, and various and sundry other things uh, that, that keep me off the streets. Um, we were you, you came in as we were talking about KISS and yesterday I did a lengthy panel about magazine sized comics in the uh, through the 60s and 70s um, and the KISS comic book I found out in my research for that panel while every other magazine sized comic at the time was between 30 and 35 cents that one was a dollar fifty, and it still sold over a half a million copies. It's wow. almost like KISS is interested in the money I know right <laughs> <laughs> impossible yeah um, Man, did I have that? I had. Uh, I think I had a couple copies of that book, actually. Sure. Because their blood was their in blood it. That's what I was going to say. Please explain that for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah. Uh, they they put their, you know, not that it was a publicity stunt at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that this was that either. <laughs> um, they uh, they put uh, they put the. This is how geeky I am. They put uh, Gene, Paul, Peter, and Ace's blood into the ink. To print the book, you know, yeah. a a little bit of blood like this into the huge printing press, but still, man, their blood they were was able in there. to say their yeah. blood was in the book. The, yeah. There's a great photo. It was a big press yeah. opportunity, and uh, a great photo of the four of them standing on the the grate above the giant vat of red ink. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. They're, yeah, about to pour them in yeah. Yeah. with yeah. the head of the printing press, and I think Stan was probably there, Stan was there and then yeah. Steve Gerber off to the side. Um, Looking on befuddled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was I was just at the right age when that thing came yeah. out. So I was a huge KISS fan as a mm-hmm. kid. I, in fact I was um, I was Peter Chris for Halloween in sixth grade. That's oh my god. Oh, I wanna and, see a photo and, of that. Oh man. <laughs> I was I was dead sexy, man. Uh, <laughs> Love it. And and I was Peter Chris because we couldn't because I could actually kind of get that costume with homemade stuff, but I couldn't do Gene's thing because it had the right. uh, the bat wings at that time. Yeah. But it was, uh, you know, 
So you're like 11 years old or whatever, and you think Kiss is the coolest thing in the world, and then you hit like 14, and you're like, oh, those guys suck. That was terrible. <laughs> and then you hit 35, and you go, oh, no, that was really cool. <laughs> that, was, that was the shit. That was the coolest yeah. thing going. Um, and I, I am not ashamed to admit that I still listen to it. I, you know, I'm right on. I'm, uh, I'm completely at ease with my, uh, with you know, the fact that I am one of the suckers that they take advantage of every time they do a tour or put out an album. That, that okay, dump more money into the till. <laughs> yeah. And, Those records hold up though. And and some their of tours my, are always awesome. Some of my best concert memories are totally. are seeing yeah. those guys because, you know, look, it's it's yes, it's. It's tongue in cheek and it's silly in it, but you know what? They go out there and bust their asses for two hours, and stuff blows up, and I um, <laughs> there's flames, and a you know six year old man flies up into the rafters and spits blood. And, you know, where are you gonna you know? Yeah. You're gonna go. Radiohead's not gonna give you that. They're gonna stare at your shoes all night. Yeah. Uh, I went to uh, I went to one of their recent tours and took uh, my son, who was. Um, 15 at the time, and uh, one of his friends, uh, we had we had an extra ticket, we took one of his friends, and it, my son was a guitar player, and his, uh, his friend was a guitar player, and neither one of them had ever seen Kiss, didn't really know anything about it, and uh, and actually my, my booth mate at the show here, Dave Rodriguez, uh, is also a, that I write Skylanders with, is also a big Kiss fan, so I took Dave, and you know, so we're just, you know, we're standing on the seats, and it's just the coolest thing. And you know, both of my, my teenage son and his friend are kind of like, eh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it was just it was just a bacchanal. It was just madness from one end to the other. And you know, we couldn't hear at the end of it. It was so loud. It was everything a rock concert should be. Yeah. And I, you know, after it was over, I turned to my son and I said, "So what'd you think?" And he goes, "That was all right." <laughs> <laughs> and I turned to his friend Kyle and I said, Kyle, what did you think? And with a look of abject honesty on his face, he goes, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Awesome. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Your son can't tell you it's cool. Right. No, no, he's yeah. not going to, even if it was. That's what <laughs> yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. But his pal, man, but his pal changed his life right That's there. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the intersection of, uh, I, I found a way to turn this CBLDF podcast into something that's actually relevant to the mission of the CBLDF. Wait, what are you saying? Hold on, you ready? Yeah. Wait, we're, we're not just going to talk about this environment? <laughs> we're going to go around I'm the corner here. Yeah. <laughs> the intersection of rock and roll or pop music in general and comics is interesting to me on a uh, academic level because those are the two things in, in the United States since the 1950s or so that have been the most cause of moral panic. Yeah. So yeah. the idea that you know Kiss uh, and and Marvel cross paths like that in the seventies—that's uh, a real uh, uh, melding of the two worlds of uh, things that make parents go crazy at one point. Well, there's always—I mean, there's there are always attempts at music comics. Uh-huh. I you know I think the gentleman sitting next to me has done the best music comic that Thank there's you. ever been. Precisely because, kind of because well, it's also true. Um, because most of the time, when you do music in comics, it comes off off. Yeah, it's it's a hard if, thing to if do. You do music, if you do sports, and I think the third one on the list is, is you know is some guy hacking into a computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just awful because they're boring. They're about they're about motion. They're about things that you can't show in comics. Right. So when when the rare music comic comes out that works, it's I, I mean to me it's a really big deal because it's it's. 
the hardest thing to do, I think. I agree. I, I totally agree. In fact, it's funny, Patrick Reed, you know, from Depth yep. of Field, that, you know, both Vivek and I both have done a couple of these panels with him, exploring the connections between music and comics. And I find it one of the most difficult panels I've ever done because it is so hard to find, uh, you know, projects like yours where they actually intersect in a meaningful and important way. I mean, because they're both such, they're art forms in their own right that have such sure. little crossover, yeah. you know. I mean, as art forms, though, it's interesting to, to notice parallels between right. the two. You know, I think, um, you know, pop music, as they say, like almost by definition, it's pop, it's, you know, it's disposable, it's like a bubble that can burst quickly, enjoy it for a little while, and then it's gone. And, and a lot of people have thought of comics that way. You know, I think they're both media that um, have fought to be taken seriously while at the same time celebrating the fact that they are not like other media art forms. Um, you know, it's a constant push and pull, I think, with comics. Like, we're proud of comics, but also people think of comics as being comic. They're silly, you know? Um, and the same thing with pop music. And, and uh, you see similar censorship issues over the years, you know, to, to bring it back to the CBLDF, and I'm not doing that on purpose, it's just the truth. Yeah. You know, you know the, the warning labels on, on albums, you know, slapping those on there is not totally different from what was being done with the comics code. And, no, uh, there have been voluntary they measures by the. By yeah, the right, that's exactly right. Yeah, you, you, you know? can't get the you know you can't get the M and M album with the swearing at Walmart. You know, you gotta that's go, right. You gotta go some you gotta go to some dirty little dingy record store to to, to buy that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of parallels. Yeah. I don't think Tipper Gore was reading any EC books when she was a kid. Clearly, <laughs> probably not. I think this guy's yeah. desperate yeah. to say something. Yeah. Oh, they are. Yeah, they they uh, they had their original. Oh yeah, I think that's right. Chris Ryler, editor in chief, was at Gene's house, and I, I think this is something he tells a lot of people. But you know, there are Kiss coffins, there are Kiss licensed <laughs> coffins, and there are Kiss licensed condoms, and he's got them both on display in this room. And he goes, "You know, the coffins actually can be used as coffins, but also double as beer coolers." Precisely. Well, it's there you go. Pretty genius. That's true. <laughs> not sure how you as a beer cooler or as a coffin. How do you how do you, how do you know that fact? Well, it's, I just oh. remember. I'm, 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 I'm a fan. I'm oh a fan. no, I love. I, I, I should actually say, in, in full disclosure, um, before I, I I started my own company 15 years ago, but before that, I worked at Mercury Records from I want to say 1996 to 99. And so I worked with Kiss. I worked on their reunion tour when they, when they, the, when the original members got back together and they did that whole reunion tour. Oh, that's tour. great. Um, so I, I worked actually pretty closely with all those guys. And the, to, to so I have fond memories both enjoying the music as a fan, but also kind of working on. on the yeah, and me slightly with the comics too. Same, same thing. Totally. But to finish the anecdote, he what he what he told Chris with the condoms and coffins in the same room said, "We get you coming. We get you going." That was, that was his routine. So. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Genius. Oh yeah. Genius. Oh yeah. Genius. 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 <laughs> That's two puns in a row. Genius. Cut it off right there. <laughs> um, where were we? Kiss, Gene Simmons. Kiss, the connection between music and comics and censorship. And Is everybody up here a huge Kiss fan except for me? Uh, I no, I, I, I will full disclosure say I'm not a giant Kiss fan, but I, but I think that... <laughs> Part of it was beaten out of me because my former office mate was such a gigantic Kiss fan. We had velvet Kiss paintings in our office, and he played it nonstop. And I, I almost wanted to despise Kiss just to be contrary. But I do appreciate their place in rock and roll and, and what they did, did and achieved. And, and well, love them pretty good. In a lot of ways, just like comics, 
those, that's me, uh, those, <laughs> drive my wife not that, uh, what you discover at that sort of magic age of 11, 12, 13, and for me that was Kiss, and, and, and comics, and that stuff sticks with you the rest of your life, oh. like, like nothing else it, when you're younger or a little older. And so I, you know, and I learned to, you know, kind of completely embrace that. It's just like, look, that's, that's what I like. And every generation has their thing. So, oh. for, so for my generation, you know, Kiss, the, look, 1977 is the best year ever. Kiss, Star Wars, you know, I discovered the John Carter novels. Um, First issue of heavy metal in the United States. Yeah, it's just wow, like it's a good year. You, you, those are touchstones for the rest of your life. And I think oh, yeah. you should embrace it. And like every generation has their thing. Um, you know, like Ninja Turtles, Transformers, that you guys do. Sure. That doesn't mean squat to me. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know like, what? Like I look at it and go, "Oh, that shit's stupid." Uh, but, but I know that it's you know it's one of those situations where, well, my nostalgia is cool and yours is dumb. Right. <laughs> but they're really all the same thing. It's just right. Eras, that's right. No, that's been interesting. It's been an interesting learning curve for me, which is what you talked about. Because I, I, when I arrived at IDW, those were sort of the biggest things that we did, and we and we still do them. And I was probably one year too old for for those things. I just kind of skated right in on them, and so it, it's been interesting to me how you know, to, to embrace it from the other side just because to effectively market it, I need to learn a lot more about what these things are because that's something I skipped as a kid, you know, but to meet the people it means so much to, it just harkens me back to everything that does mean a lot to me. Yeah, and, and I know? think it's, it's, it's unexplainable in a lot of ways. Like yeah. my nephews were just the right age for those things. Right. Like my older brother's kids were, you know, I remember buying you know, Ninja Turtles and Transformers and Masters of the Universe toys for Christmas every year for like five years running. Um, and that's still, the, those things still mean stuff to them. Oh, yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's great. I think it's, you know, embrace your, you know, embrace your inner 12-year-old because, oh, right. uh, you know, the world's got sharp edges. That's it's very a true. Putting it. Yeah. It's a really lovely way of putting it. The, the Turtles in particular were such a, I mean, you know, the way this and kind of exploded Turtles were such an odd thing because they weren't a, you know, uh, a stadium rock band. Yeah. Right. When I found the first issue of Ninja Turtles that I read, it was, uh, you know, in, in the back of a stand in a comic shop two was towns it, was over. It the black and white one? Yeah, it was the yeah. second issue of the black and white series, and I was in fifth grade, and I was there to pick up whatever it is, I, I, you know, Spider-Man and, and whatever else I was reading, and that was something about it grabbed my eyeballs but it, it absolutely was not there for me you know it was i was way too young to be reading it but yeah. that was the appeal and it was bloody and it had totally you yeah. know oh yeah i was a huge fan of the of the mirage east the eastman lair panel yeah mm -hmm. teenage mutant ninja turtles which you know those of you who don't know are nothing like the uh the kids Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. But it's, or, I mean, they, they share elements, but they're, you know, it's, it's yeah. adults. It's bloody, it's violent, it's, there's cursing. It's, 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 not, it's not kid friendly, put it that way. Yeah. It's like a complete ripoff homage to, you know, any number of comics that were big at the time, like Miller's Daredevil. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, overtly, yeah. overtly. And, so. you know, uh, New Teen Titans and all the stuff that, yeah. that I actually was reading. Right. But that didn't appeal to me. I, I guess I just thought, 
thought it was like, interesting. Yeah. That's not for me. Well, you know, what's funny is I, I work really closely with Kevin Eastman now. I'll, we, in fact, we just opened up an art gallery that has a replica of his old original studio in it. They call it, they call it the Eastman Habitat. But <laughs> he, he would be to me sort of in a, uh, one of the original rock stars of comics because you, you can go back to the Kirby's and, and Lee's and everybody else but there you know there weren't real rock stars of comics in that that era you know they became rock stars but Eastman and, and watching him interact with his fans the way he, he's unbelievably friendly with all of them and he truly is you can see it's sincere that he's he thanks them like the, for sort of making it his life possible you know and just seeing the connection between that and watching how much it means to those people, it, it actually does. I mean, in a, in a sincere way, it makes me go like, boy, this was not my thing growing up, but I have to treat it with some sort of the same sort of reverence because it means so much to those people. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's a good, uh, that's a good segue. What, who would be your first rock star of comics? I think that for me, age-wise, Kevin mm-hmm. Eastman absolutely was, because the minute I saw like the picture of him in the back of the comics with the long hair and the sunglasses, but yeah, he really was the first personality to kind of explode and be like a rock star for me in the, sure. in, the in the world. What about you, V? Who yeah, I mean, I, th- I think um, you know if you're if the way you're, I think you're defining rock star as like a personality in absolutely. the world. Absolutely, right? yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That would be Kevin Eastman as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, for me. Um, you know, the the first writer that I think I probably became genuinely obsessed with his work was Chris Claremont sure. um, on that X-Men run, but but I didn't see him as a personality. Like, I knew right. his name and was very excited to meet him and get books signed at conventions, but but Kevin was a personality, you know, yeah. with, with his style and his jacket and his leather jacket, and I mean, he was, there was something very rock star about him. Sure. And even the book felt, you know, I mean, I, I came to that series just like you did. I went in probably to pick up a, 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 an X-Men book, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and saw this thing on the shelf, and it's black and white, and it's oversized, and it was, you know, I was like, what is this? It almost felt like something that you shouldn't be reading. You that's know? absolutely <laughs> what it felt, felt like, felt there was something yeah. dangerous about it, maybe. Um, well, it also so felt like... That, and that's very rock and roll, right? Yeah. The, the other odd thing about it is it felt like something that nobody else knew about, even though it was a huge phenomenon and changed the industry and, you know, exploded the direct market and all the other things it did. It felt like something that was like a, a secret, like nobody else knew this weird little book existed. And I guess if you have, you know, a couple million kids feeling that way, you can write. <laughs> it was yeah. very much, it was counter-programming to virtually everything that, even though right. it was highly influenced by stuff that was really popular, it was counter-programming to everything else that was out there. Kind of, yeah. pop, kind of punk rock in yeah. a way. Very you know? much so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I felt the same way, like getting cassettes of Minor Threat or whatever right. from the back of the record store. Like, this, this knows totally, about it was this. totally like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, really no different than going into a record store and having one of the clerks, you know, slip you a record of some punk rock band like a Minor Threat that most people don't know yes. about. Exactly mm-hmm. the same thing. Like a, like a secret brother. I mean, everybody wants to be part of the secret brotherhood, right. and then when that goes, when you know, when Ninja Turtles turns into a cartoon. Oh, it like completely ruined it. All the original guys who were into it were like, oh, well, that's not cool. Like, you know, By sixth grade, Turtles were done for me. You know, it's so funny, because I'm exactly the same way. You know, when as soon as they the cartoon, the TV cartoon launched, I, you know, I, was, I was annoyed. It was, it, really, it was over for me. Mm. Um, but now, you know, I have a seven-year-old son, and I have a four-year-old daughter, and, like, I can't read those old uh, Mirage comics with them yet. You know, they're nope. a little too violent. <laughs> right. But, like, I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and I can share that other stuff with them. And I have, and they love it, too. And I'm kind of, and I find myself coming around to now I'm grateful for those children TMNT cartoons and 
comics right. because now I have something turtles related that I can share with my kids. Well, to be and, fair, and, the, and that makes me very happy. The current cartoon is heads and tails above the one sure. that we. Sure, <laughs> it's actually true. a really entertaining cartoon now. It's true. Ron, what about you? Who was your uh, Who was your first uh, comic book rock star? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I probably. Probably Frank Miller and, and Alan Moore. Because sure. that's when, you know, when, when they were the guys. Mm -hmm. You know, like mid-80s, you know, uh, mid to early 80s. Um, you know, that was, those were the twin, you know, the twin gods of, of, of comics. And that's when I discovered them and, and kind of got pulled in by Ronan and Dark Knight and the stuff that Alan was doing on Swamp Thing. So... Um, you know, those, and they were sort of distant figures. They weren't guys that you would. I mean, I've never. I had never been to a convention in my life as a kid. I would. I had. I have still never been to a convention uh, as like an attendee. I've always been a guest. That I've never been to a comic book convention that I wasn't a guest at because I, I broke in fairly young, and um, there weren't a huge number of conventions back then anyway. Uh, so, and, and the fact that Alan doesn't do shows, and Frank obviously hasn't done shows in forever, for the most part, mm -hmm. um, they're still sort of distant figures, uh, which I think is, is good sometimes. Um, so probably those, those two guys, um, but I think even before that, to me, Frazetta was the rock star. Oh, oh sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, th and that was, that was um, you know, that was the guy who really was the, the, the doorway into all this stuff for me because I discovered those Valentine books uh, that reprinted his, his covers um, probably in the late 70s or so and that was like, oh man, look at this stuff and that's sort of what got me looking at comics again a little later on because I was a fan of the art even more so than the writing. Um, so to me, he's the, you know, he's the guy on the top of the tree even though, you know, when's the last time he did comics in the, you know, mid-50s? Probably. Probably, yeah. yeah. Dirk? Yeah, well, I, you know, I was going to mention Frank as well, actually. And it's funny, the, I, I had a weird arc, because I was huge into comics as a kid. I was, I was giant into comics as a kid. And I, much like everybody around the age of 16, I discovered girls, illicit drugs, and everything else. And I sort of fell off the wagon. <laughs> and, right. And so I was 16 in 1986, and I fell off comics. And I mean, I was putting comics in Mylar when I was in the third grade. You know, I was sort of ahead of the curve on that stuff. And I fell off right before Watchmen, Dark Knight, all of that stuff. So, so my rock stars I associate with my childhood are like Perez. You know, I was like a he, you know, and the and Byrne, you know, and Claremont, and all those guys. And then, but it, it ended up being a great boon for me because I rediscovered comics when I was in college, like everybody does, and. There was a comic shop next to where I was working. I got paid in cash under the table. Don't tell you know. And I was just every day popping in there to see what was up. And so I got a chance. There was like a backlog of all this material. Like Mouse had come out, Watchmen had come out, Sandman had started, the Swamp Thing stuff. You know, Hellblazer. I was just like, my mind was blown. You know, um, it was like discovering an entire section of music I didn't even know existed because comics had changed so radically in that. So I like. I think you're right. I think the true rock stars of that sort of era, you know, any, you could probably throw Gaiman into the mix too, oh, like these sure. guys that, and that there's a tinge of the personality along with yeah. just the, yeah. you know. But then I think as a as a child, to digress fully, I almost considered the characters to be the rock stars. Like Batman was the rock star to me, you know. Whether it was, I didn't know until later it was drawn by Jim Aparo or 
you know, reprints of Neil Adam books. But well, when I was a, when I was a kid, the first guy I recognized as an individual that did comics, like I liked this guy's stuff better than that guy's stuff, was was George Perez. Yeah, like I discovered his stuff on Avengers and kind of went, oh, yeah, where's where this book looks different than it did last month. Where's that other guy? Uh, right, and you know, sort of got to the to the point of I really like this guy. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then years later, I ended up working with George on a few projects. And just, sure, and it's just kind of like, you know, all right, which well, is great. Awesome. You, you know. hate to be, you know, when you do this long enough, you you, you naturally get jaded. You get jaded about about um, a lot of stuff that goes on in comics, but you get those moments like that, like working with George, where you know, again, it's your it's your inner eleven year old. You go, man, right. this, is, this is cool. I hit the jackpot. I've got to do two panels this weekend with Walter Simonson, who I think is is tremendous talent from that era. Yeah, he's the nicest Walter, guy. I mean, Walt's story is my favorite run ever. Yeah, and I'm, I know I'm friends with Walt. I'm mm-hmm. very friendly with Walt Weezy. So it's weird. So there are moments where I, there are, I still go, oh man, I'm having dinner with Walt. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. Uh, and in fact, Walt and I did a signing together a couple years ago now um, in in a store in upstate New York. Uh, south of me and north of him, and um, we ended up going out to dinner afterwards. And Walt told me over the dinner the what was going to happen up through issue fifty on Orion. Oh wow! So I knew how the whole story was going to end. Wow! And no, I won't tell you. <laughs> but it was really awesome. Yeah. Walt was the the first creator who I recognized was like this is a cartoonist I need to follow. This is somebody where I went to the back issue bins to find more stuff. Around age nine or so. Yeah. What about you, V? I mean, I think that for me was Chris Claremont. Claremont? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I love all the, you know, uh, I mean, Alan Moore and Frank Miller and Neil Gaiman, they, they were huge. They were and are heroes of mine. Um, but uh, I think, you know, talking about the first was probably Chris Claremont. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also, Frank Miller was the first comic artist that I remember being in Rolling Stone. There was a multi-page pictorial and spread, and yeah, yeah, that was a big deal. I think that changed. That was a very big deal. I remember, remember buying that issue off the newsstand. You know, back when we were newsstands, specifically for that for that article because that was just '86. Was just when I was rediscovering comics again in college. And, and, you know, like Dark Knight blew my mind. Dark Knight right. and Watchmen, I yeah. think, uh, were just, you, I, to great extent, that's what put in my mind, hey, you know, maybe, hey, stupid, maybe you should do this. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, you know, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Chris Claremont, one of the great things about being in this industry on some level is, is uh, witnessing moments like this one, which is, uh, this would be like 96, 97, whenever the first X-Men movie came out. Um, I was at the Dead Dog Party at Comic-Con, and I was standing next to Chris Claremont the first time he saw the trailer for the movie up on the... And it was just on a TV above the bar. The best phrase I could describe is nerdgasm when he saw that. I mean, he it was, it was like, ah! Uh, you know, awesome. and, but I thought about that. I thought like these are characters, you know, it's like Storm and Wolverine, and it's like these are characters that he basically created. Fantastic, you know. That's cool. I got another question for everybody. This is gonna be kind of mission-oriented. And I think just hearing, I mean, we have kind of a nice range of like geography and ages and uh, hearing what everybody was into growing up is, is interesting to me. What's the first thing that you read where you thought, this is not 
for me. This is this is too much. This is inappropriate. <laughs> and you got something that scared you, something that pushed your boundaries personally. As, and as, then, a, as a young, as like as a child, or like whenever, a yeah, yeah. whenever we thought, wow, this is really blowing my mind. And then the flip side of that is, what's the first thing that you wrote, or something that you were involved with? That and V, this doesn't have to be comics since you've been involved with a lot of stuff. But the first piece of content that you created or helped put in the world, where you thought, "Wow, I'm really doing something that's gonna mess with some heads here." Hmm. I actually have a couple of other things. Well, one, one you might the, the, the aforementioned <laughs> shop that I, was, I worked next door to when I rediscovered comics. I, you know, I was a little bit sort of out of the loop, or I had been for a while, and so I asked this guy, I was popping in there almost every day, and I'd be like, hey, what, what else is good? You know, what else should I be paying attention to? And he was like, you got to check out this. And, and like, at that point, my, my taste ran pretty mainstream at that point, you know, not in other things necessarily, but I didn't know any better in comics than to, to dive too deep yet, you know? And he threw me a copy of Faust. <laughs> and, I, and, and I opened that thing up and was just like, like that's not really what I'm looking for. And then later, when I worked in retail, the amount of there were things that were coming into our stores that you know, that maybe Eros was publishing stuff like that. That I was like, man, I, this this is this is clearly not made for me. Uh, and in terms of something I was a part of creating, for me actually is is music. I've been in bands for years and years and years, and I've written some songs that were you know. On a on a regional or you know fun hobby type level, have struck a chord with people, and and you know being on stage and playing those songs has been a blast. But yeah, yeah. nothing has really made it out into the to the ether in a big way. Sure. Yeah, it's, that's a that's a good question and a, a bit of a tough one for me, I guess. You know, I, I don't know that there's any sort of piece of art that I've consumed that that felt. Ooh, this is inappropriate or, or too much for me to handle or, or anything like that. Um, I mean, I can remember the first time I read or, or tried to read Naked Lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. and I, wasn't, I wasn't offended by it. I just I had a hard time understanding it. Sure. Um, that, and I, that's and I came that's to, exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. I mean, I, the first time you thought, wow, this, there's stuff out there that I need to wrap my brain around. And it, you know, I, I should, clar- I should clarify what I said. I wasn't offended by any of these things. Or Faust. Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's a perfectly good spot for Faust in the world. Yeah, yeah. At that time, I just was not prepared to know that it existed. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I mean, you know, David Cronenberg uh, filmed Naked Lunch, and I thought the movie was amazing. Um, and is very trippy and strange and hard to wrap your head around also. But I, I was like, I, and I think if I'm remembering correctly, I think I came to the book through the movie. I think I saw the movie and thought that was amazing and trippy and I kind of wanted to understand it better. And I picked up the book thinking it would help. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not, not to be the case. Um, but I actually think what Cronenberg did, or, or I'm not sure who wrote that, uh, the screenplay, but I think adapting that book into that film was, was pretty genius. Because mm-hmm. um, the book I had a really hard time consuming and, and I like trippy material so it's not that that wasn't for me in that sense. Um, in terms of work that I've done that, uh, that um, I can't remember exactly how you phrased the question but that might uh, be really like mess with people's heads a little bit. Something um, where you're pushing your personal boundaries and yeah. something you thought like this might, this might be pushing the audience. Something where you... Where yeah, you... I mean I've, I've tried to do a lot of that. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, a lot of my background is producing on Broadway and, um, and ironically like I'm not a huge Broadway fan. You know, I, I tend to think Broadway musicals, for the most part, are, are quite cheesy, to be honest. And, and nevertheless, like all my work on Broadway has been musicals, except for A Raisin in the Sun. And, and what I've tried to do is work on, on musicals or, or straight plays that, that push the envelope. You know, the first play I, uh, musical I worked on, where my role was very small, but it was real, was The Producers. 
um, Mel Brooks, the producers, and that's a, a show that, that makes fun of the tradition of musicals while being a musical. Um, you know, Raisin in the Sun, I produced, we brought, uh, we cast Sean Combs, you know, better known as P. Diddy, as the male lead. And uh, so we were, you know, sort of pushing the boundaries a little bit there. I remember being told, you're crazy, African-Americans don't come to Broadway, kids don't come to Broadway, you're going to lose your shirt. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous if you give them something they want to see and, and you let them make sure they know about it. Maybe they're not reading the typical Broadway press, they'll come. And, and they did. Um, so I think everything I've done, I've tried to do a little bit of that, but, but um, for me, a, a real accomplishment and I love all the things I've worked on, but the one that has a special place in my heart probably is American Idiot. I was one of the producers of Green Day's American Idiot. And, um, and I grew up uh, in New York City. My parents loved the arts. And they were, ever since I was a little kid, they were taking me uptown to Lincoln Center and to, to Broadway. And I was seeing Broadway shows and opera and ballet. And as soon as I was allowed out of the house on my own, I was going downtown to places like CBGB's and the Danceteria. And I was seeing punk rock shows and experimental avant-garde theater at La Mama. And so I kind of grew up on one hand, like loving what was going on at the New York City Ballet and being into punk rock and being amazed at early Sonic Youth concerts and not understanding why people who were into modern dance weren't also into Sonic Youth, you know? <laughs> and because to me, they were similar, you know? And so with American Idiot, I felt like that was something that I really was bringing those two worlds together in a way that had a chance of, uh, of broadening the horizons of Broadway kids and broadening the horizons of punk rock kids. Um, so, and uh, I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan, and uh, I love The Wall. I think The Wall is a tremendous piece of art and, um, and a life-changing piece of art. And, uh, and I've heard you know, young, younger kids say that American Idiot has kind of been like that for them. Um, I don't know if I would, would claim that necessarily as the producer of that show, um, but if that's true, then that is something that I'm incredibly proud of. I have two points. One of those is that The Wall, the movie, is one of those things that when I was a kid seeing it, I was like, this is, this is taking my brain places I wasn't prepared totally. to go. The second part is I think that you may not have even realized, you, you, when you were writing The Fifth Beetle, you were walking a tightrope that was very deftly and well done that you may not even be aware of. When you're writing about a character who is homosexual and you're writing basically from his point of view, The Fifth Beetle is really in his brain a lot. Sure. And you handled that with such a deft touch. and. It really could have been upsetting to people. You know, it could have been something that was offensive that you were writing about this character. That's his experience. Is you're, not, you're right. I never, I never. You didn't. It didn't occur that. to you because yeah. you handled never worried it really that well. This was going to be offensive, but you know, or it could be offensive. Handled just off to the right or off to the left in either direction, and you really could have, um, you know, glad could have been protesting the book as opposed to being proud of it. So I think that's something you weren't even aware of that you uh, handled. Uh, with a, a, a very deft and, and, and well done touch. And thank you, but maybe that's why it was, was deft because I didn't realize it. You know, that I, I was just going to say, it's it it natural. It's you know, probably it's a good thing you weren't aware of that it was a tightrope you were walking. Yeah. You know, yeah, maybe maybe if I'd been more of aware of it, I was I would have screwed it up. <laughs> right, <laughs> no. that's what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> but thank you. That's very kind of you sure. to say. What, yeah. what about you, Ron? Um, well, to 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 that point specifically, I think it's it's. Um, you know, you think about writing a character. You don't think about, I'm writing a gay character. Or, right. or for me, you know, I don't think about when I'm writing a, a female character or, you know, uh, Witchblade is, is coming to an end. Uh, last issue is being drawn right now. We'll probably get it off to press in the next week or so. Uh, and um, I know that in the climate that we are in right now, 
I will never get a chance to write that book again. Right? I've written that book for 10 years and really kind of fell in love with that, that character. Um, but I'm not a woman, and the climate that we're in right now in, in, in comics and in media in general is if you are not that thing, you don't get to write that thing or you don't get to draw that thing. And I think that's, that's, a, little, um, that's a little scary to me. Um, I, know, be, I know I mean, that wasn't the question we were No, no, we were, no, that's yeah. exactly we were, interesting. We were going on, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but I, think it's, it's, I think it's something we have to be careful about as, uh, as an industry is that we, we don't, uh, our creative casting isn't so simplistic that, you know, you have to be that thing to write. I mean, nobody asked me if I was a space alien yeah. when I took over Silver Surfer. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think well, what, what, we do as, what we do as creators <laughs> is we make stuff up. And, yeah. and it's not a question of, yes, your experiences and your, and your background, all that obviously plays a huge part of it. But, you know, there are, there are people who are good at making stuff up. And I think we sometimes lose sight of that fact uh, when, we're, when we're so concerned about um, uh, representation. And not that we shouldn't be, but I think we, we sometimes forget that we're an industry of the imagination. And sometimes you should let people just, you know, make stuff up. I agree. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's funny. I, uh, I'm hopeful that it doesn't go all the way to sort of the worst case scenario, scenario you were talking about. That, you know, it's, sort of, it's, that, it's the fine line between making sure that people of all races, genders, you know, sexual orientations are represented or, and have an equal opportunity in things and sliding all the way down to the end. But one thing that we've noticed recently we, and this, there was no cynical anything about this at all. We suddenly realized that we had women both writing and drawing several of our Transformers books at the same time. And it was just, a, it was a natural progression. And now none of the women at the, or none of the Transformers at the time happened to be women. It just sort of, it's something that happened naturally. So, you don't have robots writing and drawing? <laughs> well, precisely. That's awful. That's yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. Um, but, yeah, I, mean, I, I guess I sidetracked this there a little bit, but I think no. it's... It's, no, no, it's great. It, it's something that, uh, yeah, I think you know. Obviously, it's a, it's a very gray area because there's no yeah. there's no hard and fast right answer and wrong answer to it. Um, I mean, I well, I was going to say I always think of this in terms of what what I call emotional authenticity. You know, I feel like your stories need need to be emotionally authentic. I mean, you know, it it, it never occurred to me, as you said earlier, to to worry about the voice that I was giving Brian. And like, yeah, I, I have no idea what it's like to be gay or Jewish uh, and be based in Liverpool in the 1960s. You know, I'm not gay and I'm not Jewish and I've never faced that kind of persecution. Um, so that's true, you know? And, and I've never in my life would I claim that I had the obstacles Brian had. You know, it was a felony to be gay, anti-Semitism was prevalent, etc. Um, however, you know, when I was a young Indian kid running around New York's, New York's Lower East Side, wanting to write comics and produce Broadway musicals and put a punk rock album on a Broadway stage, that was crazy. You know, I was supposed to become a doctor or an engineer, you know, or join my family business. That's what young kids of Indian origin are expected to do. So again, I, let me be very clear. I'm not suggesting I know what it's like to be gay or Jewish at a time of, of, of serious persecution for those things. But emotionally, I felt very connected to the Brian Epstein story. I felt I could write that voice because the gay Jewish kid from Liverpool 
you know, because as a young Indian kid that didn't want to be a doctor or an engineer, I was inspired by the gay Jewish kid from Liverpool who found a rock and roll band and said they were going to be bigger than Elvis. So I felt I could emotionally be inspired by and relate to that story. So I think if you have that kind of emotional authenticity, why can't you write those characters? You know, if, if the core, the emotional core is the same, you know? If you're a robot, why can't you write Transformers? If you're a robot exactly. person? No, but, but seriously, I, it, it's, about, it's about emotional authenticity, yeah. I, I think. Well, I think it's, you know, representation and diversity in this is wildly important, and I think everybody up here has fought for it. Obviously, and we, yeah. as, we as an industry need to do a better job of that, you know, but from like Dirk was saying, but, but, not at the but cost. But you can't reduce it to a checklist either. That's right. exactly no, right. exactly. But I mean, and that's not fair to anybody in any direction, and I don't think anybody no. wants that. There's also zero reason that a woman can't write Sergeant Fury. That's you exactly know, or what I'm saying. Yeah, totally. It's, Once it's you start for the same reasons. You putting know? things in specific categories, then it, it's, it's at a cost of creativity. I, I, yeah. I think, you know. I mean, that's awful. That, that would be awful. Most yeah. of, most of the, the real work of, of certainly of editorial, and, our, and in a bigger sense, our business in general, is creative casting. You know, sure. I, yeah. um, you know, I think Archie Goodwin's the best editor that ever you know, walked the face of comics. And I sat in his office at DC one day and um, sort of you know, really awkwardly explained this Batman story that I wanted to do. Which, which ended up being the, uh, the Bernie Wrights and Kevin Nolan uh, splash page job that sat in a drawer for 15 years and finally saw, saw print a few years ago. Um, and, you know, so they're talking to Archie Goodwin, who is, you know, a god among men, uh, both the nicest guy in the world and also a great editor and a great writer. And, uh, and I'm kind of getting through this and, and, you know, having flop sweat. And he's like, yeah, he's, yeah, my pitches suck too. So uh, <laughs> look, you just, you just, yeah, go. You know what you're doing. Go, go, go. Do this thing, and and yeah, those guys are fine, and we'll, you know, we'll just. I trust you. And he and he said at time that most of his job was picking the right people to do the job and then leaving them alone. And he and he hmm. gestured behind himself, and he said, you know, if I do that. I can put my feet up on the desk and read, and I got a lot of books up here to read. That's so, awesome. um, you know, that, That's a great story. that was a big moment for me. Uh, you know, like if Archie Goodwin, who could do what I was trying to do much better than I could ever do it, was like, yeah, go do your thing and it's fine. Um, you know, that, that lesson, anytime I've done editorial stuff, that lesson is in my head mm -hmm. of, you know, look, get the right people and then help them tell their story to the best of their ability, but help them tell their story. Don't enforce your story upon them. Um, and uh, it's probably the biggest lesson I ever got. Well, I mean, and you're absolutely correct on every level with that, of course, but in that, uh, we can go all the way back to when I first met Vivek and the first time I saw the, the Andrews pages for the fifth Beatle. You know, and, and it's like, as great as the concept is and as important as that story is and as a cool guy as you seem like, we started talking about it. It wasn't until you threw down a few of Andrew's sure. pages yeah. that you go, "Okay, holy no, crap!" Yeah. You know, <laughs> this is yeah. going to be something. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we got to wrap it up. Do we have time for one question? If anybody has one, we got one question. Question for the panel on the earlier point: uh, with what has is turning into an over sensitization of American society to 
any of you, respectfully, as, as writers, creators, editors, what have you, feel that there's not necessarily going to be another push for comic book fans, so much as let's go see everything, like... Let's what, sorry, say again? Not so much like, like banning comic books like was, was done previously, yep. but a push for, like what was being said earlier, oh, if you're not this specific thing, then you can't write this specific thing, you're push in that direction. A, a PC revolution, basically, is what you, yeah. So, I, I going back to you know, you know, comic book books, that's fine, versus no, these things aren't bad. I mean, is, is there, do you all feel professionally like there, there's a, a shift happening, or is it everyone's, you know, fire rumblings over here, but everyone's still going to it, it's difficult to say because the shift that is happening is primarily a good thing. What you, you do want diverse voices, and you do want the people to say, like, I want something different. I want to see somebody else write this. I want more than just a bunch of white men and one Indian guy saying this stuff for me. I'm, I mean, but, I'm, pr- I'm proud of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm proud that I'm the brown guy up here, you know? I'm proud of you, too. Nice. But where's the... <laughs> but, but, but I guess the question is, where's the line? Where does the... the the push from the voices get to the point where they're suddenly telling you what to say as opposed yeah, to yeah. And, and that's the, the line that's drawn and really I don't know that I think that in all things the conversation is the most important part the fact that we are having a conversation about it the fact that all of us up here can say we're middle aged white dudes we've had our say it's time to let somebody sure. else say yeah, something there's, I, there's no again there's not a black and white answer it's, it's no and, and that line is not that line doesn't stay in the same place. Either. No, never. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a question of, you know, yes, we're, I think we're doing better. We still need to do better. But um, it's a process. It's, yeah. a, it's a process of finding our way as an industry and as, as creators to, to, to figure out what's the best way to do this. And, you know, going to the, you know, going to the extreme of, you know, of, you know, sort of creative casting that's just checking boxes and, you know, making sure that everything's policed so that there, are, you know, n- nothing triggers anybody and nothing's offensive. And that's obviously, you've gone way past the line and you're, you're choking the creativity out of the process. Um, right. We, uh, to, you know, to come back to why we're here, uh, there, there are books out there, there have always been books out there, comics and otherwise, that, that I find offensive. And you know, I will stand up for the right of those books to offend me. Right. Um, right. You know, yeah. it's it's not about me. It's it's about you know what we as a society as a whole find permissible. Um, yeah. And you know, it's it's not anybody's individual right to impose that. You know, well that offends me, so don't do it anymore. Right. Um, right. You know, how about that offends me? So I'll go do something else. Yeah. Or how about yeah. that offends me? So let's have a conversation about why that upsets me. Let's have a conversation about yeah. do you as an artist want to not offend me? Do you want to offend me more? Right. That's the important thing. Yeah. And what you're talking about is this ongoing cultural conversation where people are saying, in a lot of cases that I think you're speaking of, that offends me, so you need to stop. Where I think the more important conversation is this is why that offends me. Yeah. Why? And that conversation makes art interesting. Or, yeah, I was going to say, put it, put it into your art, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, it, it offended me that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not gay, but it offended me that gay men couldn't marry until recently, you know? And so, here, and in the Brian Epstein story, you've got a guy 
that dedicates his life to spreading a message of love around the world through the Beatles dies at the age of 32 not having had a proper boyfriend. So you know what? Like we did a partnership with Freedom to Marry and when the book came out, the, you know, we had uh, pages about Freedom to Marry in the back of the book. You know, so when I see like anti-gay literature, like, uh, you know, it, it should exist, but like maybe I can do something about that. Maybe yeah. I can stick something in my comic book. To, to, to show the other side of the coin. Yeah, you know, you I just mean, you put it into your art. You you you, you know. You, you yeah. have to you know you have to walk the walk. Respond. And, you know, there's stuff that you know, Kim Davis not handing out marriage licenses to people on, on gay or straight offends the living hell out of me. Yeah. Um, besides the fact that it's illegal. <laughs> right. But, right yeah. You know, but I I don't you know. It's not my responsibility to tell her that you can't feel that way, that you can't, you know, right. you can't go out on the on the on a public square and have that conversation. Because I always feel like the best thing that we can do for people that have views that might be offensive to us is give them a platform. Absolutely, Absolutely. You know, yeah. You shine the light on, agree on the people yeah. that, that uh, offend us as a society right. instead of putting them. Uh, putting them off to the side in the shadows because that's when stuff festers and that's exactly becomes right. a much bigger it's problem. The, the marketplace of ideas is what Oliver Wendell Holmes called it. If you let people have their voice, you can have the discussion. Right. The conversation is the important part, and as long as the conversation is the focus, everything else, uh, you know, on either end doesn't collapse in on itself. So. Yeah, you know, and to, it, and to it, bring it back around, yeah. that is what the CBLDF, the Comic Book right. Legal Defense <laughs> Fund, oh, yeah. is dedicated to. Yay! Thank there you guys go. for coming out. I appreciate it. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank all of our panelists. That's Vivek Tiwari and Ron Mars and my co-host for the afternoon, Dirk Wood. I also want to thank the staff and the management at Baltimore Comic-Con. They were wonderful hosts for the weekend, and I always appreciate when they give us a chance to participate in program. I want to thank the people that attended that day. We had a very lively um, crowd in front of us, and that always helps when you're doing a a live uh, conversation like the one that we just had. If you have any comments or questions about the podcast you just listened to, you can email us at info at cbldf.org. You can visit our website at cbldf.org. And if you want to donate and help us to continue our legal and education work, uh, you can visit that website and you can hit the, the donate button right on the left side of the page. It should be evident. And if it's not, shoot us an email and tell us how to make it better. Um, also, it would be super helpful if anybody wanted to go to iTunes and rate this podcast. Um, that helps us get more eyeballs on the, uh, on the programming, and we would really appreciate any uh, input and, and ratings that you want to give us. Once again, my name is Alex Cox. I'm the Deputy Director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, and I hosted, edited, and produced this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much, and I hope you listen next time. Thank you.